co-living is kind of this thing that's come about um, that we've kind of remembered from when we used to live this way, but it's come about as a way to solve all of these things because it does have very tangible benefits in terms of the sustainability, in terms of cost of living, in terms of community. Um, and so basically it's kind of a revolution of co-working where you have your, your shared space and you have your desk or your little office area. Um, and so our model is that there is a co-working um, level on the ground floor, which is totally open to the public. And we'd run events there, yoga, meditation, and obviously have hot desking and co-working. Um, but above that will be multiple levels of living, which will be very curated. So you have to apply to come along. You'd have to um, at least share a common set of values so that because it does take a certain kind of person to actually live in community. Um, you can't just come in and expect everyone to do your washing and it's not free living, um, definitely not. Um, and so there's definitely the aspect of it being a curated community, which is very uh, attractive to a lot of people to live with like-minded people who share the same ideals. That was Al Jeffrey, a lead facilitator and founder of Realized Flow, an organization dedicated to the development of individuals and the building of community and cultural change. My name is Regan Quick, and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. When Asanga had suggested that we interview Al for the show, I was honestly quite blown away by how much Al had managed to achieve considering how close we were in age. After only a couple years out of high school, Al and his team managed to turn the One World Summit, a Melbourne conference bringing young changemakers together, to basically a global initiative. Now from reading through his website, you can really feel the passion of Al and how dedicated he is to creating community and bringing people together. Having dabbled in mindfulness and meditation myself, I was also extremely excited to speak to someone who essentially seemed to embody all the values core to mindfulness and yet still balance this with an entrepreneurial spirit to create social change. We didn't get to touch on his work around co-living spaces until the end of the podcast. So if that is something that interests you, please do stick around till then. Now, we may have spoken to Al months ago, but re-listening to this episode has inspired me just as much as when we first spoke to Al. So I hope you enjoy our talk as much as we do. So my name's Al Jeffrey. I am, I call myself, I suppose, a facilitator and a communicator. So I do a lot of facilitation, both within corporates, um, within communities, and then also one-on-one with other executives or social entrepreneurs. Um, and by communication, I mean I do a lot of speaking, a lot of writing. Um, and I also have a very entrepreneurial spirit myself as well. And so I'm the founder of Base Commons, bringing co-living to, to Melbourne and to Australia. Um, and so I'm incredibly passionate about human potential and how do we create spaces that foster people's creative gifts um, and also, also foster a sense of community to bring a new sense of belonging and home um, to the modern urban world. Alrighty. Um, I'm really interested how your upbringing sort of influenced this sort of passion because you seem so passionate about it. Um, how much of that is due to your parents or where you were living? Yeah. Um, so I started my entrepreneurial journey when I was 12 after watching a World Vision ad. I was actually sitting down watching Jumanji with my brother and a World Vision ad came up on TV. And at 12, that was the first time that I would consciously actually understood what that ad meant, what it meant about the state of the world and where we were heading. And that's when I started to question like what had kind of dipped into my existential crisis and started to question what's my role within all of this? What is my purpose? Um, and at the time I was very passionate about Richard, Richard Branson and his work with using a business as a force for good. Um, and so that kind of sparked my entrepreneurial career and started in business at 12 and then built a, a number of small businesses throughout my teenage years. Um, but at 14, I realized that 
as an entrepreneur, you kind of are your business and your stuff, your fears, your fears of rejection, your fears of failure, fears of success, all of that influences your business and your ability to have impact. And so if I'm not working on myself, I'm actually not working on my business. And so I started to immerse myself in personal development, um, went to a number of workshops with Tony Robbins and Martini and all the typical personal development self-help gurus. Um, and so that was when I started to dip myself into this whole personal development um, realm. And then in 20, when was it? 2014, I got selected for an accelerator program in Boulder in Colorado. Um, and so there were 10 of us selected from around the world to come together, live together for six months in log cabins at the base of the Rocky Mountains. And the whole premise of the program was to protect your courage and to help you face your own stuff, basically face your own fears. Um, and so it was very much growing you as the founder and in turn growing the business, but let's focus on you as the founder. Um, and on day one, we'd opened up more to each other than we ever, ever had in our lives. Um, we shared very, very vulnerable parts of ourselves um, and just really built this very strong sense of community from day one. And that was the first time that I'd really felt that sense of community before when I was 12. Like my parents could really and still struggle to understand what I do. Um, and so when I was 12, I kind of shut off from my parents. Um, I didn't tell them much about what I was doing because they didn't understand it and it just felt like they didn't actually care at the time. Now I understand that it's just because they didn't understand it, but at the time it, it almost hurt because my parents really didn't, couldn't support me in what I was doing and so I decided to shut it off. And so through my teenage years, I actually, I basically had no friends. I was quite depressed, but I was busy doing business and busy creating startups and um, trying to be significant, but I actually had very few friends. Um, and they always say that your pain leads to your purpose. And your, I suppose your biggest suffering is what makes you passionate about the things that you're passionate about. Like the etymology of the word passion is actually rooted in anger um, and to take the burden of suffering of something on. And so if I'm passionate about community, it means that I'm taking on the burden of those people who are suffering from isolation and choosing to make that my life's work um, because I've felt it. And so that journey through my teenage years of experiencing isolation and experiencing this lack of connection um, has led me to now making community a big part of my work but also my kind of my experience with the personal development and human potential movement um, has had me see the relationship between community and, and human potential and how one can't exist without the other we need others in order to become more of ourselves and we need to become more of ourselves to be able to be more of service to community yeah, got you. Um, do you feel like that disconnect you mentioned earlier is something that's, you know, just symptomatic of being a millennial change maker? Or what do you think is the main reasons why there was that isolation? Yeah, well, for me, it was um, like I often say, I was speaking last night at an event about mindful goal setting. But I feel my, my development, development as, a, as a human kind of happened backwards or at least opposite to most of my peers and my friends in that during my teenage years, which are meant to be about exploring relationships and emotion and love. And my teenage years were spent exploring professional development and career and business and da -da -da, like doing, doing, doing. Um, and uh, I suppose naturally this doing, doing, a like constant doing mindset blocks you off from developing strong relationships because every relationship becomes around business or you want to get something from the relationship, it's very transactional. And that doesn't foster meaningful connection. Meaningful connection is about sharing and the vulnerable aspects of the human experience. Um, and so for me, that doing nature and the very um, go get it kind of attitude is what forced me to feel this connection. But also like the rate of, we've been born into the mobile revolution where we are 
more connected than ever before, in quotation marks, which we are technologically, but culturally and socially definitely not. Um, and in fact, um, isolation is on par with heart disease for, res for um, risk of morti mortality here in Australia. Um, equal amount of people are um, uh, passing away due to either suicide um, as there are people passing away due to heart disease. Um, and so loneliness is an incredibly important issue that we need to face in the way that we organize our society. Um, and yes, it's rooted in technology, but it's also rooted in this very fast paced, rapid change kind of culture that we're in now, um, where it's also kind of a competition to be the busiest person on earth. You ask someone how they are and it's always, oh, I'm so busy, so busy. Um, and I always just think to myself, wow, like, I'm sorry that you're so busy. Like, why don't you take a, take a break, take time out? Um, but yeah, it's very easy to get caught up in um, what I call uh, measures over meaning. And we've we started to judge ourselves and um, work towards these expectations in the outer world, but we start to lose contact with what's actually meaningful for us. What do we actually care about? Is it happiness? Is it joy? Is it connection? Um, and we need to start to focus more on those uh, important pillars to our human experience rather than trying to create something of value in order to please somebody else. No, I got you. And I think you raised a really important point. Um, so how do you feel like we can make progress towards, you know, making sure that we have this fulfillment and happiness, even though we're living in a world that's very metrics based and it's sort of yeah. always been performance measured our whole lives? Yeah. Um, so it's definitely a balance of the two. And this is something I was speaking about last night is it's not, uh, it's not about when I was at, in Colorado for this accelerator program, we were all paired up with a coach and my coach, um, he also coached the CEO of Boeing and a number of other organizations. And so he was very good at what he did and very good at business. And at that time, I was very stuck in my head, very stuck in doing, like I said. And so I went into my first meeting with him with a bunch of questions on how do you do this and how do you do that? Um, and he knew I was stuck in my head because he's a fabulous coach. And as soon as I sat down, uh, he's a big kind of chubby, bubbly guy with a, a character that just sits there and smiles at you and waits for you to fill the silence. And so he was sitting there smiling at me and I said, so Steve, um, what do you think about X? And then he just said, um, Alex at the time, um, I don't think, and just sat there and smiled at me. And uh, I had no idea what to do next. How do you have a conversation with someone who apparently doesn't think? Um, but he flipped me basically upside down and then started to ask why it is that I do what I do. And, um, basically at the end of the conversation, I was just like, cool. So I'm just meant to sit here and meditate and have faith and hope that the world's going to be okay, but just manage my inner environment and I'll be fine. And the world will be fine too. Like, is that how we do it? We just all become monks. Um, and so I flipped from like, uh, entrepreneur, like hack everything, create change, go, go, go to cool, inner peace, tranquility, equanimity. Um, and then I spent the next six months trying to reconcile the balance between the two. How do we both be peacefully on the inside, but also take agency and create change in the world. Um, because I'm very much of the opinion that it's not either or, it's always both end. Um, if we just like drive results in the outer world, but we're stressed out inside, we're anxious, we don't have time or energy to actually love our loved ones who are close to us. Like I could be stressed to the wall trying to create community and therefore so stressed that I don't even love the person sitting beside me. Um, there's something wrong there. And so, for me, the balance of um, being and doing, so to speak, or doing things in the world and taking agency and having goals and intentions, but also being conscious of how you be and the state of your being as you do those things. And so always to question, um, yes, I can set these goals and, and have intentions and visions for myself, 
um, which is great, but also how am I being now? Am I okay with who I am? Am I accepting who I am now? Or am I constantly judging myself against my ideal future? Um, and so a lot of it is about, uh, and as a mindfulness coach myself, a lot of it is about mindfulness and being able to constantly bring ourselves back into the present moment um, so that we can not get so caught up in judging ourselves against the future. I'm actually glad that you mentioned mindfulness because I was looking at your stuff online and mm-hmm. into that you're sort of into that yoga meditation space. So yeah. I guess, I mean, of course, mindfulness is so much more common these days, but can you give us, I guess, for everyone listening as well, a brief sort of overview of your interpretation of mindfulness? And Yeah, so mindfulness, uh, like there's a difference between mindfulness and then meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start with meditation. Meditation is the, like if you look at the etymology of the word, Again, I like to look at the actual root of the meaning because I feel like we've lost sense of what things actually mean these days. But meditation um, comes from the Latin word um, medita, which means basically to take appropriate measures. And so if you look at like medicate um, or medication, that's to take appropriate measures to heal. Um, and also from the word um, mediter, which means to heal or to cure and also um, just med, which means to observe or to see. And so basically meditation, the real meaning of it is to heal or to, to cure ourselves through observation. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, uh, meditation has been practiced for thousands of years in the Hindu tradition and many other traditions. And so it can be rooted in either spirituality or religious belief or faith. Um, but in the modern world, it's more useful um, and I prefer to talk more so about just the general art of mindfulness because meditation can be this kind of, you live in this chaotic world and you go about your days super in your head and um, busy, busy, busy. Then you meditate and you have this little pocket of hopefully calm and equanimity and then you go back to your busy, busy life. And it can be this, um, yeah, this tool that we start to depend on in order to feel calm. Whereas mindfulness is the ability to constantly have almost this, what you experience in meditation, to have those effects ripple out throughout your day. So when you're writing, your writing becomes your meditation. When you're walking through the, through the city, that becomes your meditation. And mindfulness is the, the art of constantly bringing yourself back into the presence. And so mindfulness basically means a objective moment-to-moment awareness of your thoughts, your body, and the environment. And so moment-to-moment, um, constantly arriving in the moment and departing the previous moment so that you're no longer caught detaching to certain expectations and outcomes and you're constantly re-arriving in this current experience and experiencing things as they are, not as you'd like them to be. Um, A lot of our stress and anxiety and depression is caught up in us judging ourselves against who we think we should be or how we'd like things to be. Um, And it's that space in between expectation and reality that causes suffering, um, according to Buddhism. And so the ability to let go of um, our expectation and just arrive in reality and how things are um, is really mindfulness. And the benefits are, um, firstly, in terms of our mental health, um, our bodies are so flooded with cortisol today, especially in our kind of forward flexed environments where we're sitting in a desk forward flexed. And then most, a lot of people go to gym and they do these um, kind of front body exercises to look at it, the, the beach, but it's all forward flexed. Um, and that causes us to breathe just into our sternum, basically, or the, the upper lobes of our lungs. Um, and by association, when we have, as children, when we have the kind of <gasps> fight or flight reaction, that's shallow breathing into our lungs. And so by association, our, as soon as we breathe just into the upper lobes of our lungs, we now are associating that with the fight or flight response. And so we flood our internal organs with cortisol, which leads to a lot of the autoimmune disorders we have today. Um, and so 
there are a lot of physiological benefits of actually like breathing deeply, which is probably the, the most well-known tool for mindfulness is just actually taking your breath down into the navel and not just letting it hang out in the chest. Um, but the other, I suppose, benefits are in terms of your productivity. It's so easy today to be sitting down and trying to write a proposal, but constantly dancing off in thoughts about what you're going to do tomorrow or that other 10 things that you have to do. And you never actually do anything properly and you never really enjoy anything you're doing. And so in terms of um, productivity, and if you look at kind of the neuroanatomy of a flow state or the zone as people talk about it, um, that is basically a meditative state. When your prefrontal cortex switches off and your thoughts and your sense of self, that doesn't actually exist anymore, which is why when you're in the flow, you don't realize it until afterwards. Um, and so it's that meditative state that has you be at your best, that has you perform, that has you enjoy what you're doing. Um, and so meditation is a very practical way to, to get into that state so that you can perform, so that you can be your most creative, um, and also so that you can just enjoy the current experience. Got you. Um, that's quite an ambitious thing though, because I've always found, I've always tried to get into mindfulness and found it very difficult to even get past the initial 10 minutes of, a, you know, an app. Um, so how do you recommend people can really, you know, reach that state of fulfillment considering it seems like it's such a hard barrier to get past? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's lots of, uh, like with anything, our perception of what something is, is based on the media and based on what we see in the world. And so for a lot of people, our perception of what mindfulness or meditation is, is someone usually good looking, sitting on a beach, sitting in a perfect lotus pose with a perfect posture and apparently not thinking at all. That's kind of the, um, the usual perception or perspective of what mindfulness is. And so of course, the beliefs then come up of, no, I can't sit still. No, I can't not think. Um, and no, I don't have time to do that. They're usually the beliefs that stop people from actually trying meditation or mindfulness. Um, and the first thing I'd say that there's absolutely no right or wrong way to do meditation or to be, to be mindful. Um, it's really a, like the end goal is to be present with your experience. That's the end goal. And so whatever it is that works for you to get there. For me, my greatest tool for mindfulness is dancing. I love going to, I speak at a lot of festivals and I love going there as well because I just get to dance. Um, and it gets all the energy out of my mind and straight into my body. Um, and so I'd say... Firstly, if, it's, if you're finding it hard to get into mindfulness or meditation, just really let go of all the stuff that you think you have to do in order to meditate. You have to sit this way or you have to do this because you really don't. But if it's going for a bike ride that's your meditation, then have it be that. If it's writing, if it's listening to music, whatever it is that gets you to feel your senses, basically. Um, our senses are really the only gauge for what is happening in this present moment. Um, and so if you're able to feel, like feel the feelings, smell the smells, hear the sounds, taste the tastes, really become aware of the five senses, um, objectively without trying to know what those things are that you're experiencing, but just feel them and experience them. Um, however you do that is totally up to you. And so just going for a walk, maybe even feeling the soles of your feet as you walk across, noticing the stones, hopefully not a stone in your shoe, but um, feeling the feelings um, and whatever that looks like, like for you, then that's totally fine. Cool. And I just picked up on something you said. So like when you were talking more about the introduction to mindfulness, you mentioned it was this um, trying to solve this disconnect between expectation and reality. Mm -hmm. But as a change maker, isn't it almost like a contradiction because all you're doing is trying to create I mean, maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way, but yeah. your expectation of what the world should be. So how do you mm -hmm. bridge that disconnect between the mindfulness? Because I mentioned you said it's all about balance. So how do you yeah. bring that balance? Yeah, yeah. this is, last night I was talking a lot about the dichotomy of 
being in presence and being okay with the present moment and also having agency and creating a new reality um, because that is what we're doing. Um, and so we're trying to create a new reality in the outer world, um, but it's important to be present within our inner world as we do that so that we can have clear decisions so that we can respond consciously and not reactively um, and therefore be of greater impact. And so to be balanced, um, I feel like it's very much about, for me, I know when I'm getting stressed out is when I've got too many back-to-back -back meetings or when I haven't created space for myself to even notice that I'm breathing um, or that my body is breathing. And so to create balance um, for me is very much about, firstly, focus, like to really focus on maybe one or two things that you're doing, like one or two projects, um, so that you can do them well, but also so you have time for yourself time for you to have your morning routine, whatever that is, whether it's yoga, meditation, just reading, writing, whatever. Something that has you connect with yourself and connect with what's important for you. Um, that's how you start to reach the balance, um, is this whole, we talk about like the inner work and the outer work. And there needs to be a balance of the two. We can't just constantly be doing stuff. That's when burnout happens. And there's a lot of burnout that takes place in the social entrepreneurship environment because we're so passionate, which is great. Um, but we almost become our purpose and it almost absorbs us. Um, it's like in a relationship with your partner, there's this urge to merge and you just want to basically merge with your partner and you have this dual identity and you lose yourself. Um, and then when you break up, it's the worst thing in the world because you don't know who you are anymore. It's the same thing with purpose. It's very easy to merge with that and become our purpose. And then when it doesn't work out, we become incredibly depressed because that became our identity for a period of time. Um, and so to maintain the idea that you are a separate human being and this is what you love and this is your core identity and these are your rituals that you do to maintain your own well-being and at the same time you're creating something in the outer world. And so I'd say making sure you have a balance of like time for you, like space that no one else touches that's your time for doing the things that fuel you um, and then some, create, some time to create in the outer world. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's really interesting that you, we do keep coming back to this topic of balance. Um, so how do you feel like you divide your time between, you know, your more coaching and development sort of side and yeah. then your own sort of entrepreneurship? Yeah. So at the moment, I'm much more like I've been held, held the identity of an entrepreneur since 12 and I haven't not had a project since 12. Um, and so I'm actually more leaning out of my entrepreneurial work and more into my facilitation work. Um, for the last four years or so, no, maybe the last three years, I've been a lot more passionate about facilitation. Um, and I still create like with Base Commons, I'm still the founder of Base Commons, but I don't have uh, much of an executive role at all. Um, my role is more so to bring the team together to facilitate the culture of the team, um, but then to let them do all the creation. Um, when there's events that we need to run and I need to come in and facilitate a workshop for the community, I'll do that. Um, but my role is becoming less and less about the actual creation of a project or the execution of a project um, and much more just about the facilitation of it. Uh, and so for me, yeah, I don't have too much time that's actually about creating a project anymore. Uh, my focus is very much on, at the moment, finishing writing my book um, and then writing new talks, developing new workshops and actually delivering them. Um, and the rest of my time is about going to my own retreats, going to workshops to continue my own learning um, and reading and doing my yoga. And so the two, first two hours of every morning is just my time. That's like blocked out for me to do my morning routine. Um, and I usually don't start my days until 10 um, so that I have 
the ability to have a nice slow morning and, and I do write for a couple of hours as well. Um, and then the rest of the day is broken up into, I break my days up into different types of mental activities. So whether I'm in kind of a, a content creation zone and for the next two hours I'm going to be creating content. Um, and then the next hour or so might be more admin, email, communication stuff. Um, and so I'll break my day up into more so the types of activities so that I can be in the same mental space for that period of time and not have to dance between different types of thinking. Um, yeah, but I very much margin out two hours in the beginning of every day and at least one hour at the end before bed is just my time. Um, and this is something we worked on in the accelerator program in Boulder. It's the entrepreneurial time system. Um, usually the time system that most people work by is the justification model. And so work, work, work in order to justify having time off. It's like, oh, I've done a good job and now I can have time off. But we're actually more effective, more creative um, after we've had time off. And so why don't we block that time out first and then design our work week around that? Um, because doing that also forces us to be most productive because we only have a limited amount of time now. So we'll only get the things done that need to be done, not fluffy things that are nice to do. We'll force ourselves to basically work on the 20% of things that create 80% of the results. Um, plus you feel better about it because you've had time out to actually spend time with yourself and do the things that you love. Cool. So I think something that you mentioned, like sort of when you do facilitation mm -hmm. in these sort of corporate settings like lawyers and stuff like that, I guess you just want to touch on that point a little bit more. What's it like coming into these massive firms? Like I read that you've done stuff with Google and Apple. Yeah. So what's it like coming into those firms and trying to bring almost like a culture change? Like, yeah. How does that work? Are they receptive or? Yeah. Well, yeah, most of the time they bring me in and so it is something that they want, but it's still very scary. Like culture change um, and I have been told by my managers a number of times when I go in for a briefing call with someone not to use the word culture because it actually scares people um, because it's such a big topic and it's so risky and fragile um, just to use the word workplace instead. Um, but yeah, I've, I never thought I'd work in corporate. Um, like I've never really, I've never had a, a corporate job or anything. Um, and I never thought that I'd work in a corporate because I just find it so stale myself. Um, but then the first time I got asked to do a gig in a corporate, I was like, wow, there's, um, I think I read the other day that there's like 20 billion hours collectively for the Australian population, 20 billion hours of work a year in corporate workplace that Australians do. That's a lot of time that we spend in a corporate workplace. And so if those workplaces can be more vibrant, um, more uh, community oriented, then we're touching a lot of lives. And so I started to think that, wow, maybe I should start to play in the corporate space. Um, but it's very interesting trying to, for me, hold my own integrity and be aligned with my own values as I go into a workplace that maybe doesn't. And knowing that I have to shift some of the language that I use to speak their language and gain rapport and gain credibility, sometimes I have to say things that may go a little against my values, but I know that's what they think they need to hear. Um, and so to kind of the idea of giving them what they want in order to give them what they need. Um, and so there's a lot of like NLP, neuro linguistic programming, which is very, very can be very salesy and very manipulative, um, but also very effective when it comes to human behavior change and culture change. Um, and so I find it a fun kind of game sometimes. I hate wearing a, I never wear a suit, but I hate wearing even like a shirt and stuff. And so I'd go down like in the elevator down the bottom and I'd just be in my pants and like a t-shirt and then I'd put out my shirt, go up the elevator, go up the lift, get out the top and then do my thing. As soon as I get back in the lift, take the shirt off again. Um, I very much feel like it's kind of an undercover agent sometimes. Um, 
but yeah, it's a very, um, they want it for sure. They wouldn't pay for it. They wouldn't ask me to come in if they didn't want it. Um, but with a lot of things, sometimes it hurts to get what we actually want. Um, and I'm reading a book at the moment called Awareness, which is about basically waking up and becoming more aware. And he starts off the book, but it's a very brutal book that just kind of whacks you in the face with all the stuff that you don't want to hear, but you know you need to hear. Um, and he starts off the book by making you very aware of the fact that you don't actually want to wake up. You don't actually want to um, get up in the morning. Being in bed is nice and comfy. So you don't want to wake up um, because it hurts. Waking up and becoming more self-aware means you have to face some of the demons that you've built up over the years. Um, but ultimately, the end goal you want. You want to feel more okay with yourself, more accepting, more loving. Um, but the process is painful. And so it's the same with these organizations. They want change. They want more productive workplaces. They want workplaces where they can retain their talent and their staff and attract the world's best talent and staff. But it means the corporate's identity needs to change in a way. Um, and so it's a a funny game of pushing them a little bit, but constantly coming back and getting rapport and pushing them a little bit and constantly coming back and getting rapport. Um, and so, yeah, I find it a very fun kind of exercise, very challenging at times when I fear that I'm going to lose myself amongst everything um, and lose my own set of values and integrity. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a very exciting space because there are millions of people that work in these workplaces and um, yeah, they know they need to change. And so now they just need to be gently kind of guided in the right direction. Um, it's interesting again that you brought up, you kind of keep touching on this issue of compromise and like how you make sure you don't lose yourself in the process. Yeah. Um, and I think as a young person, a lot of the time we sort of feel the same thing. A lot of people who have, you know, sort of social change aspirations are often told you've got to tough it out in corporate first. You've got to, yeah. you know, show you've got the grit and then you can go and do that. What do you say to people that say that and do you believe that personally? Um. <clears throat> I don't like, yeah, I've never worked in a corporate or anything. And so I've learned my, everything I know, I basically learned just by doing it and failing and having the right support structures around me, like a mentor, a coach, or just friend tours, as I call them, friends who are willing to like push me and hold me up. Um, and so, um, yeah, no, I don't think you need to like go and tough it out and work in the corporate. Um, I don't think you need to do that at all. I do think uh, that you need, I think what you learn in a corporate is yes, how to work with deadlines, um, how to, uh, I suppose, maintain professional relationships, how to work with expectation. Um, and for me, the most important is building this network of mentors or coaches or these support structures around me so that like, if I don't have someone to keep me accountable and say, Hey, that thing you're going to get done, um, on the 17th of August is a done. Um, if I don't have that, I'm not going to do it. And these are the kind of things that you learn in the workplace is how to work to deadlines and get stuff done. Um, and so I think that you don't need to work in a workplace, but you just need to be aware of what you're missing out on by not doing it and make sure they replicate that um, by building a network of mentors and, and people around you. And I guess touching on that point, um, do you, because you mentioned, you know, how big, of course, these corporates are and how much mm -hmm. power that's in them and how social change makers generally kind of like pass them off to like, oh, they're never going to change. Yeah. Is it still then possible to come into these places and generally have an impact or is it just going against the machine and you can't make yeah. a difference? Like, is it possible? Or? Yeah, there's always the debate of like, do you worry about focusing on the old or you just focus on building the new? Um, and, you know, the quote about uh, don't try and change what's old, just build the new and make the old irrelevant. Um, 
but there are so many organizations, um, even just departments within these organizations that have so much desire and so much energy and they have a very passionate team um, that I've definitely experienced there is a lot of potential in say with OzPost for instance, they have a number of different project teams that are doing some very exciting work. Um, and a lot of organizations now have kind of their entrepreneurial programs or their, in, their internal kind of um, hackathons and startup events to foster this entrepreneurial spirit within their organizations. Um, and so it's becoming increasingly accepted within organizations so that if you are an entrepreneur and then you decide to work in an organization and become an entrepreneur, um, there are programs now to foster um, people like us uh, and to support us in still having our ideas outside the box and um, not just becoming the annoying ones in the workplace that always suggest new ideas, but actually now they're starting to listen to these kinds of people. And so, um, yeah, I don't think it's, again, I don't think it's either or, I think it's both. And I think let's, yes, build outside the system and build the new solutions, um, but also work within the system um, because they want it and they need it. Um, and it does take a lot of patience. And so, uh, it definitely takes a special kind of person to be willing to come up with new ideas within, say, OzPost or an existing corporation. Now, I think the next thing I want to really touch on, kind of just your passion, you mentioned like this creating community, creating cultural change. Yeah. And I really want to touch on One World Summit. Like, how did this thing go global? It just seems so impressive to like start off, so I guess, you know, local and then eventually hit the world. So can you mm -hmm. just give me a bit of a background of how that operated and how that got so big like did you feel did you expect it to ever get that big i mean expect's probably the wrong word to use but yeah um no we had no idea what we were doing in the beginning it was just meant to be a once-off event um which was actually my previous project which was a um a project to uh basically raise money to combat child slavery in sub-saharan africa that the volunteer team completely left basically during university exams and i was like shit what am i meant to do and so I decided to run this event to attract Melbourne's young social change makers and hopefully then recruit a new team. But as I was organizing the event I started to question everything that I was doing and started to talk to my mentors and say that something is just not feeling right, I need to kind of change my path and I decided to let go of that project to raise money for um, Save the Children basically and focus on creating community and creative ecosystems. Um, and so this event changed, the whole purpose of it changed as we were organizing it. Um, and so we had no time to kind of think about what was next or what would happen after the event. And so we had 200, 250 people come along, which was great for the first event. Um, and they were all inspired, all connected, uh, very passionate and wondering how can they, what's next? Like how can they continue working with the community? And we had no idea. Um, but a number of the people that came along were international students who were studying from either Singapore or Malaysia or elsewhere. And they started to ask, can we take this back? Like, can we take this to Singapore and to Malaysia? And um, it was just like, cool, why not? Um, I had very early on in my business career learned to create systems so that you can automate and so you can replicate. So every email you send out, create a template for it. Every proposal you send out, like sponsorship proposal, create a template. So you could just give a package to someone and say, hey, run the business. Um, and so we had all of that. And I could just then say, cool, here's Singapore, here's Malaysia, here's Cape Town, here's San Francisco, here's New York, um, and here's Melbourne. Um, and so in 2014, yeah, that happened. Um, but yeah, that's not running anymore, obviously. Um, but that's what got me to the accelerator program in Boulder, which is then where 
I started to question what next after, now that we have these global communities, what next? Do we create an online tech platform to connect our communities? Um, but in the US, I started to see obviously co-living emerging and I started to realize that I'm not a tech entrepreneur, that I'm a cultural entrepreneur. And so um, after we create these events, how about we actually create spaces where this culture of creativity, of expression, of connection can exist in the very way that we live so that when people come out of these events and go home, they don't have this kind of post-event depression where you like, especially for me, when I go from a festival back to home, I'm like, shit, I wish that I could just be so open and expressive the whole time. But then you go home and it's like nothing like this. Um, and so we started to think about, cool, how do we actually re reorganize and redesign what home looks like um, so that these cultures can start to become just the very way that we live. Um, and so that's kind of how it progressed into where I am now. Cool. And speaking of where you are now, I think this is probably a good point that we can sort of wrap up on. So give us a bit of a rundown on how base common works like this kind mm -hmm. of space because reading a little bit about it, but it's something that was quite new for me. And I assume yeah. a lot of people listening might not have heard it as much as yeah. people out there. Yeah. yeah. So co-living, um, like it is this, we've lived like our ancestors lived, not so much in co-living, but in community um, for centuries. That's how we used to live. Through the industrial era, it became much more of a segmented, you know, we had the nuclear family where you lived with your family and you didn't need to talk to anyone else and became very self-sustained. Um, but with, of course, the cost of living rising, with, of course, um, our impact on the environment, now that everyone's owning one of, one of everything for themselves, and also with the loneliness and the lack of community, co-living is kind of this thing that's come about um, that we've kind of remembered from when we used to live this way, but it's come about as a way to solve all of these things because it does have very tangible benefits in terms of the sustainability, in terms of cost of living, in terms of community. Um, and so basically it's kind of a revolution of co-working where you have your, your shared space and you have your desk or your little office area. Um, and so our model is that there is a co-working um, level on the ground floor, which is totally open to the public. And we'd run events there, yoga, meditation, and obviously have hot testing and co-working. Um, but above that will be multiple levels of living, which will be very curated. So you have to apply to come along. You'd have to um, at least share a common set of values so that because it does take a certain kind of person to actually live in community. Um, you can't just come in and expect everyone to do your washing and it's not free living, um, definitely not. Um, and so there's definitely the aspect of it being a curated community, which is very uh, attractive to a lot of people to live with like-minded people who share the same ideals. Um, but you would have like a small private living area. It's definitely private living still. It's not like a hostel that's totally open. Um, we're very much trying to make it a mix between like a, a normal studio apartment and a hostel and somewhere in between. So that you have like a 12 meter squared private bedroom, private bathroom, small kitchenette and a little maybe study area. But then there's a larger shared kitchen, a larger shared lounge room, meditation room, theater room, um, gym space, and then a permaculture garden on the rooftop. And so there's lots of shared spaces and shared amenity as well as the creative space, but you also have your private space um, because you obviously need to design for like the, the introverts within ourselves and the extroverts within ourselves. Um, and within community, that's a very big topic about how do you create spaces for us introverts um, like myself who want to live in community and we want connection, but we also very much value this time for ourselves, And we don't want to always have to be happy and like gleeful and chatting to everyone. Um, and so it's co-living is, is basically the merge between a studio apartment and a um, hostel. And it's basically given that 70% of the world is going to live in cities by 2050, um, our focus is very much on redesigning a, an apartment block vertically growing cities. There's a lot of people creating like urban villages out in rural areas, which is great. Um, 
but also 70% of the world is going to live in cities by 2050. We need to start to redesign how do we develop cities and vertically growing spaces. Um, and so that's what we're focusing on. Um, I really like the idea of co-living and I think it's really good that you touched on the introvert, extrovert sort of thing because that was something I was going to ask. But I think my next sort of question is you focus a lot on community, um, but you did mention that it had to be curated as well. Mm-hmm. So my sort of worry is what happens when you have a disconnect between these amazing vertical living spaces full of passionate people mm-hmm. and then the outside world? How do you bridge it? Yeah, so our... Um I've done a lot of looking into like communes and the reason why there's the same failure rate in communes as there is in startups basically. Um, And there's only a couple of communes that have actually lasted more than 20 years. Um, And a lot of it is because there is this uh, monoculture obviously and you need, like with nature, you need diversity to survive. Um, And so you can't curate so strongly that you end up with like 100 of the one person. Um, Otherwise you can only last basically for one lifespan maybe. And so for us, it's very much about having this. And because we see the space also talking about creative potential, like this space will be almost an entrepreneurial ecosystem. A lot of our members, um, a lot of the members of our community are entrepreneurial, are creative, um, because they're willing to live in something that doesn't actually exist yet, but they're willing to participate in something that doesn't exist, naturally attracts entrepreneurial people. And so we want this exchange of energy, this exchange of ideas, which means we need to keep the doors open to the external world. Um, and so for us, your private living space and like the living quarters will just be for those that live there. But the bottom floor of the creative space, the, I mean, the co-working space, the events, all of the events, everything will be open to the public. Um, and we'll be really trying to, um, to bring more people in because that's also how we make sure our impact ripples out into the, the broader world um, is by keeping the doors open so that people can come in and experience this sense of community. And that's also how we grow. People come in and something just feels great about this space. They don't know what it is and they just keep coming back. And then all, all of a sudden they want to live there. It's like, cool, join the wait list. Um, so we need to let people experience it. And it, um, with one of our advisors uh, who runs a space, not a space, a large community in the middle of Utah, um, a lot of their energy is actually focused on trying to bring in different kinds of people because it's so easy um, we're attracted to people that are alike. And so it can be very easy if you just let it go for it to just become this monoculture and you actually have to put more energy into bringing in new people all the time um, than attracting the same. And so that becomes your role as kind of the community curator and community facilitator is actually trying to bring in new people who maybe wouldn't naturally be attracted to this space, um, but trying to build the bridge um, so that the space remains diverse. Yeah, and so we definitely don't want it to become this kind of monoculture, um, almost um, like Burning Man-ish space where there is this mentality that out there is bad, and but us in here, we're creating the, the new world. Not at all. Yeah, um, I did get Silicon Valley vibes a little bit, so I'm happy that we sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm glad we've cleared it up. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I guess with the project, like where are you guys at now? Like when do you foresee it? Well, like, is it already open now? I should no. say it's probably still a bit in the future. Yeah. So this has been a project that for me has definitely tested my patience. I've always known that like we're the only ones in Australia doing it. So we get all the media calls, all the speaking gigs, everything. Um, but, uh, and it's just a matter of time until uh, like industry and government and council actually start to open up to the idea. They very much are just in the last year. There's been a lot of media. There's been a lot of like conferences that I've spoken at because they're wanting to talk about it now because they know that 
developers are struggling to develop property for the millennial generation. They have no idea what we want and they don't know how to build for us. Co-living is very much one of um, the answers that they're starting to see. And so um, we've just had to be patient um, because we are very much focused on the community culture we have wanted to really build the community first instead of taking a very kind of startup, lean startup approach and like raise the funding, build the space and then basically sell and get people in. We really want the community to be part of the co-design process. And so we ran the Weave event series, which was a way of teaching the skills of sustainable urban living, as well as building the community and as well as having them co-design the space. And so we asked them questions. We're interested in how do they see the physical architecture of the space? How do they see the cultural architecture? As in what kind of, do we want to have potluck dinners with everyone every week? Do we want to have like what kind of cultural initiatives do they want? And then also the financial architecture because the financial model behind property is actually the biggest challenge. Um, and we know that if we're going to innovate within property, that's the one thing we need to solve. That's what's locking us out of the property game at the moment is these large deposits. Um, and so we're curious about how they want to, um, or how they prefer it to work. Um, and so we ran that event series and at the moment we're focusing on more online community because we kind of burnt ourselves out focusing on like an event every week for six months basically was a lot. Um, and yeah, we built a strong uh, group of people, but we also need to broaden the conversation Australia wide because um, we want to make it more of a national movement um, and we want to gather a lot more data. And so uh, for the next six months, we're focusing on online community, um, doing a lot of online campaigns um, and kind of a lot of media online, but also we'll run more casual events just instead of saying that we're going to do this for six months, just saying, hey, let's do an event next month and let's put it together casually instead of making it a big thing. Um, and so at the moment, we're focusing on yeah, the online component um, and working a lot with council and government to start to lobby against because also zoning regulations make it very hard for co-living to exist. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm speaking at the Planning Institute Australia's conference next month to start to bring in this conversation of co-living so that we can start to adjust planning law um, so that co-living can actually exist because at the moment it can't. And what's it like working with those governments and councils? Are they very closed up or are there a few people you can see like the spark in their eyes? Is it more still very conservative yeah. or what's it like? Yeah, it's like, uh, like before when I was talking about the corporates, it is still very conservative and the property industry is very male driven as well. Um, and so, but there are people who, yeah, they have the spark in the eye, they totally get it. Um, but like in any corporation, there are definitely people who are on your side, but you're not dealing with a person, you're dealing with a whole nother entity and it has its own agenda. And so you can have one, two, three, four, 10, 20 people that are so passionate within the organization, but at the end of the day, it's up to the entity as a whole because it has its own shareholders. Um, and so, yeah, in the beginning, I used to get naive of like, yeah, he's totally on my side. Like, um, we just got to sign it off and it'll be all good. But then two weeks later, the email comes back and no, sorry, these people said no on that person. Um, so it's slow, hmm. yeah. Well, since we are sort of near the end of the uh, podcast, I suppose, something we like to end on is, um, I guess, are there any other books or resources or things you would recommend to our listeners just to get passionate in the area you're really interested in? Yeah. Um, for, well, in terms of mindfulness um, and just general well-being, um, I would say like Eckhart Tolle with The Power of Now is a very easy read, but um, very relevant for the modern world. Um, in terms of uh, like maybe purpose or finding um, direction, um, what would be a book? 
I just say look up Ikigai. So the Ikigai framework, which Ikigai is a Japanese word that means reason for being. And so if you just Google it, I-K-I-G-A-I, it's a very simple kind of Venn diagram that breaks down purpose into four elements. What you love doing, what you're great at, um, where you find purpose or what problem would you like to be part of solving, and then what's something you can be paid for. And you just basically fill in the Venn diagram. It's a very visual way to represent. Uh, and in, in between all of that, the nexus of that is kind of your reason for being. Um, and so it's a very visual way to see or to get direction on where you're going and how do you merge your passion with what it is that you're really good at doing um, and find something that's, that's yours and for you. Um, so that's another framework. Um, and then another book, um, I'm not too sure. I'd just say podcasts. Get onto podcasts. I listen to many podcasts. Obviously, Tim Ferriss's podcast, NPR Radio Hour, um, many, many podcasts. So I'd say just get onto podcasts. And it's almost like having a friend describes it as if he's had multiple different mentors all his life. He's never actually known them, but he's just been listening to their voice all the time and they just start to become mentors for you. Um, and so, yeah, I just say to get on to more podcasts like Lantern. Good job for being here. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right, I think we'll wrap it up. Appreciate yeah, cool. Right, well, thank you very much for that. We really appreciate your time. And no worries. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to our 13th episode from Lantern. And once again, that was Al Jeffrey. If you're interested in finding out more about the work that Al does, then please check out his website at aljeffrey.com. And if you can't wait for more, episode 14 will be live across all our channels in two weeks' time on Sunday. So you can catch it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcast content. If you did enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it really does help us grow and get these amazing people's stories out to the rest of the world. You can also keep up to date on all the content we're pushing out on our social media. So that's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under the handle Project Lantern underscore, all one word. And you can also check out our website, projectlantern.com.au. If you have any feedback for us or want to reach out and just say hi, you can also contact us anytime on social media or via email at hello at projectlantern.com.au. And again, we're so happy to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth-led social impact. Until next time, stay awesome.